This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Vong. Join us in our search for a world in which many worlds can thrive. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. For more context, go to pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl And follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. Welcome, Cynthia Hathaway. We were supposed to be in bed. That was the plan. Because we share a room in the beautiful house at Paka Art Projects that we stay in. So we thought it would be fun to have the conversation in bed. But plans have changed. So now, dear listeners, we're in a car. <laughs> we drove a crazy five <laughs> minutes away from the house and we almost fell into a ravine. Uh, but here we are in the car. It seems like appropriate. Don't you think, Cynthia? Very natural, natural place and space to be. (laughs) (laughs) For this edition of our search for manifestations of the pluriverse, we tune into the layered landscape of central Asturias in Spain. We encounter large-scale extractivist industrial activities and a patchwork of small-scale rural caserias, self-sustainable farms. In every conversation, we sense the remnants of the Franco regime and the civil war that linger on unrepaired. We traveled here wondering if the strong working-class identity of the region, with its unions, strikes and hard-fought victories, still lives on today, as the industrial decline that started in the 80s carries on. At the same time, we see that tourism and leisure are becoming an important economic activity and that rewilding is high on the agenda of policymakers, making it food for marketeers who advertise Asturias as a natural paradise. Reality is obviously way more complex than a marketing slogan. Will the workers' culture of solidarity and struggle be the social foundation for Asturias' future? And can this future be a plural future that doesn't deny Asturias' pastoral past? and ways of helping each other out. So welcome, Cynthia Hathaway. You were born and raised in Canada and you arrived in the Netherlands in the late 90s. And you entered a master's program at the Design Academy. Maybe also already in Canada or maybe it started as a child, but you've always done quirky stuff, fun stuff. Like you worked, you have an interest in giant vegetables and miniature trains, for example. So maybe you can um, take those two examples to say something about your way of working and thinking, the giant vegetables and the miniature trains. Sure. Thanks, Eric. (laughs) Nice to be here with you in this beautiful, beautiful region of Spain, up a dirt, dirt road, which indeed probably many wheeled creatures have ascended and descended over time. And I I bring that in because of your link to trains and um, my passion in general for what is termed by others to be amateur expertise. But actually within the fields of expertises, because I want to say it's expertises, we tend to judge knowledge and uh, non-knowledge, let's say unknowing and knowing, and those who are on the periphery of a system that uh, prejudges what expertise is, keep certain people uh, away from the way we can learn about being in the world or what we are learning and who we're learning from. And so I've been always interested in these groups that are completely fine with doing their own thing uh, in in their almost bubbles, I could say, and those are hobbyists. And uh, it's within those worlds that they actually show the way the world should be in their terms, because the real world is not allowing them to do what they dream to do. So if you want to do something but you can't in the one-to-one scale world, you do it in miniature, and that's where your imagination can go and grow and evolve and feel safe in being imaginative. So it has to do with a sense of control linked to imagination? Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, control in saying, listen, I can't control the world that maybe I'm not pleased with or doesn't make me feel like I fit in or it's I just don't see a reflection of the of even fantasy or imagination or another type of world that goes beyond the path as you said in your introduction and hobbyists find this free space to be able to experiment to um, tinker as we call it to create actually a lifelong passion and obsession for something. And they, they uh, keep that going till the bitter end, let's say. In fact, when you find the last piece that you need, it's almost like it's over. And in that process, they create a lot of expertise that you're also interested in. A like lot of expertise. Expertises that we have even lost. So, for instance, um, I like to bring these groups together. I like to bring them to... To, to collaborate, to just talk about what they do, to explore how we can build together a world. And I brought together, for instance, at Platform 21, uh, uh, a group of builders of miniature. And of course, this was with hobbyists, trained miniature hobbyists, but it was also you know, other people that build in small. So architects and their maquettes, they're building small as well. Um, young children also started often with a train set. So why not bring them to the table? And other people that work with miniatures. And each group got a meter of track of paradise to explore what they consider to be paradise paradise and we all came together on this massive 55 meter track and built together um, a, a, a landscape in which one train would go through and link all the paradises together and within that train was a camera that projected the scenery one-to-one -one scale but the sharing was so interesting for me because these hobbyists that are so in really in their world we're so happy to share how to build a tree um, with, you would expect architects would know, but indeed they were like, how do you build a tree so beautifully? How do you actually manage to, uh, you know, cut To make those, a rock look, look like a rock. Yeah, or... yeah. And grass look like this and... and um, uh, and actually to share the fact that the hobbyists, the trained hobbyists go out into the landscape and look at trees as a painter who paints uh, watercolors, this concentration, and they're more precise than anyone else can be. So it's not just sticking a piece of sponge on a couple of wires, as you see many architects do, <laughs> I have to say. They, they see this as a moment to show their skill. And they're and they're more than happy to share it. So that was that was lovely to create the sort of non-hierarchical space of of learning. And the skill of growing giant vegetables. Yeah, well, the, I mean, this is a another world altogether. And uh, I I was always so fascinated in how do you actually make another scaled world? So it's not just it's not just miniature. I'm interested in it's also the opposite so a giant pumpkin that you can actually go inside <laughs> and feel like I am so small you know I shrink I'm nothing and and how are those in the natural world we only have to look to giant vegetable growers because they just do it I don't say just lightly they put a seed in the ground and they grow it and before you know it you have a massive pumpkin or massive squash or zucchini or carrot or whatever with great care great knowledge because if you if you don't become let's say one with the vegetable and how much it needs it will explode on you so there are these thresholds of knowledge and understanding that you the expertise really uh, you know has to grow over time as well but these again these these hobbyists in the giant vegetable world are a, a community and they share tips it's not for any kind of money they're sharing seeds for free they're actually saving our heritage seeds 
And that's wonderful. And we say, oh, come on, because it's giant. How can that be heritage? But actually, in South America, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, giants were there. They were growing. And we've just manipulated them so much to fit inside a package or be shipped easily or to ripen in transport. But this is a system that intervenes and says, no, 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 hang on. It can be something else. But isn't it for you, as a, as an outsider, is it hard? To, it takes time, I think, to win the trust of these bubbles of amateur expertises, as you can call them. Yeah. How do you do that? I come in not knowing. I come in and saying, with with a curiosity. I think we that's so essential to everything. Not knowing everything, this sort of what's this word is out so much now but unknowing um that uh to be engaged with other systems of knowledge that normally are not part of that official system that i come out of just i i what are you doing here and how are you doing it and from there it takes time that's for sure and i stick to it i even grow the giants myself or I build miniatures so that they see I am I'm I have some affinity to what they're doing but at the same time I don't know what I'm doing so they almost run to help and that's yeah but you also um, link it to another agenda so you open it up because you're not only interested in the giant vegetable itself you're no. interested in in the, the thing that lies beneath it or the thing that it represents. Yeah. And that can also be a threat for these closed bubbles. But somehow you are able to win the trust or approach it very lightly, it seems like. That's a, quite a special quality. Well, I think that has to maybe do with the fact that I'm not approaching them as other. I'm not approaching them as, oh, you're hobbyists and you're in your own world. And, it, and I... Once I'm sitting there talking with them uh, or or bringing them to tables with other knowledge, I think they start to uh, have a platform in which they feel safe and trust to share and find affiliations. I think that's also what I do is I find affiliations between knowledge pools and I bring them together. And as soon as I can get them to talk, they start to feel uh, they aren't alone, that they're actually sharing the same skills and understanding of the world. Um, yeah, you approach them as I experts. Break, yeah, I break, exactly, absolutely. They are experts that we, mm. we have to bring all experts to the table. Nice. So you've always been engaged with teaching and education. You built curriculae for, for two masters, the Fun Lab that you did for Design Academy and System D for Sandberg. You did that together with artist Melis Smets. And both seem to be focused on thinking, again, thinking outside existing frames or combining different frames together into new ones. Um, can you give me some examples of that trajectory? Like you, you, you worked for Fontes in Tilburg. You created a disco there as a free space. Mm -hmm, Let's talk about mm -hmm. the disco. I think it's an interesting... Well, I'm, I'm, again, very much about uh, how the commons is, is disappearing. And the commons is this sort of original place of people coming together and sharing expertise. But I find within education and these... So a school is also a commons for you. You define a school or an education system as a commons. Actually, I, I don't. I think it actually should be more of the commons. I think it has become a very bureaucratic space and a very uh, rigid space where, uh, you know, you, you keep within your discipline and you're, you're, you're sharing information, but it's, it's really for other agendas. And I think we need to bring um, this open free space to just talk and share what you know and what you're doing. Um, take the risk of even saying, you know, I don't know, can you help? And I think that's what I do in these spaces of knowledge, whether it's um, setting up the Department of Search and not research at a very top world 
renowned uh, science park in Utrecht to and bringing artistic thinking beside uh, with um, academic scientific thinking to create that in a sense a space of commons of bringing two ways of thinking together to because we share themes so why not work together more and to allow that to percolate and create a sense of belonging because in a way that's what happens this this space of the commons that is uh, n often not even thought of in architectural plans um, even in schools of art and performance there there's no space of coming together uh, that's what I noticed at the, uh, in, uh, the FAK in Fontes was that where can we come together as artistic thinkers to um, even start performing together, to start thinking about how do we want to learn and, and have that free space. So, And maybe also a slightly unprogrammed space because everything is programmed and everything is put there's, into boxes. Yes, and that creates a great stress also on the students, on the researchers, on the teachers, even on the management who have to follow all these, uh, you know, very, yeah, I don't even know what they're called, boxes that they have to tick. And, um, you know, these spaces of learning uh, almost in a way can't be evaluated. Uh, so I have a, also a difficulty with evaluate, evaluating whether you have made it or not, or if you're right, you know, you've you get an A or a B or a 10 or a 1. It's just about being together. Um, so the disco space, yeah. the disco that yeah, I opened baby. up. <laughs> disco. Um, I think it's, Why disco? I think disco, um, which it's unrecognized actually even as a space of freedom, as a space of equality, as a space of at one place those a place where people who didn't fit into general society could come and explore in a through the body body through um, uh, embodied practices I guess you could say um, their sexuality um, their uh, way to express themselves it was a very radical uh, free space a very political space, actually. And we don't recognize that about disco. We uh, think it's a light-hearted place of, of um, very easy music. But actually, the, the beat was very different from rock. Rock was a very, very pounding, uh, leading up to sort of this sort of very masculine almost space. Whereas disco was um, an ongoing beat a rhythm that just kept going and going and going and it it allowed an openness that um yeah rock rock didn't let's say and and i think um to create a space of disco anywhere actually it doesn't have to be within a performing school but a space of disco as a metaphor of free expression a safe space it can happen anywhere and we have to see these connections to of course the performative of course to uh, music uh, of course to the arts to of course to um, our bodies to express a different space of of knowing and did that disco change anything you think or is it still in the minds of people or f even physical is it is it still a place to meet there in Tilburg? In yeah, uh, you know, I, I haven't returned, but I know that um, the new lector that we actually prepared this whole lectorship with the community, with teachers, with students, um, that it, it, the lector is taking off uh, with, with the ideas that we set forth. And it's the first time that a community created the lectorship. And I think that's that's something that um, instead of a top-down situation, it's a bottom-up of what do we want and how are our practices reflected in in the the lectorship. And so um, I th I think it's still continuing, of course, maybe in a different format, 
But, um, you know, I, I started a potato garden, which was the Deleuze Guattari potato garden. This idea of um, uh, rhizomatic thinking that if you, Deleuze and Guattari used the tuber as an expression of, of thinking that goes beyond hierarchical A to B, but pathways of thinking growing um, almost where root doesn't know where it's going and creating nodes and these nodes are where I think different people or different thoughts and actions come together and the FAK is one of those nodes let's say in the city of Tilburg in the place of education in a place of artistic research and, and academic research a very important node in a whole system of knowledge making so the potato garden was a place not only to to grow potatoes, but it was a representational space of action and and thinking. For quite an abstract idea of the rhizome. Yeah, but so, you 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 materialize that into always. potatoes and French yeah. fries. I have to materialize. I I think that's also with um, without making it banal because that's quite that's something else huh? to. You make things fun, but you don't make it simple, or you don't simplify it. No, I think that's no. Important to say. I think also because it's always contextualized. I mean, I'm not going to put a potato garden in the next project I do. It's only because that context and the history of that place even feeds me from scratch what it wants to say and how can I platform that. For instance, a book was presented to me from a security guard there about the history of, of the place we were at, which happened to be a nunnery at one point. I open it up, and besides all the the stories and, and drawings of the new architecture that was put in place, there there were photographs of nuns on the place in the 1950s peeling potatoes. So I, I just, my brain goes crazy because I think I, I cannot believe that, first of all, I come here, I knew nothing about the theory of Deleuze and Qatari. A teacher told me about this, reflecting upon the way I practice. Security guard presents me with a book that has the nuns. I've already decided I have to Grow make, potatoes. Grow potatoes as a tangible metaphor. And this path, this way of just going with a flow... Yeah, you feel so, you feel right. It's, it's wonderful that yeah. potatoes all of a sudden say yes. <laughs> it sounds like a, almost like a fairy tale, or like a novel, like a sort of a, it's like a fiction, almost fictional narrative. It's, it's almost yeah. like fictional narratives you create. It is, and that's also why I enjoy bringing in the giant vegetable growers and Brad Warston, who is a, a champion Guinness World Book record holder. He supplied the potatoes for me in the, the garden of Rizome and, uh, of Guattari uh, and Deleuze. The, all these connections happen because uh, I'll say to, to Brad, ah, this is what I'm doing. And he said, well, Cynthia, I happen to be growing um, heritage potatoes. Uh, would you like the seeds? Some of them that are not even dated, they're so old, and I'm saving them by growing them here. And then I have, again, another expertise coming in. So it's also about sort of... Um, you keep also, you maintain this network. So yeah. it could be that at some point the miniature tree builder comes in again in a different context for a different reason. Definitely. And, and also this sharing. So for instance, Brad Worston, I told him I was going to talk with choreography of dance students at Code Arts in Rotterdam. And I wanted him to come in and, and talk about the giants. And he said, well, I'll talk about the giants, but I will also talk about the choreography of Japanese gardens. Now, my jaw drops when somebody can so quickly say, ah, I'm, I'm, with, I'm going to be with choreography students of dance, but from my space of knowledge, I know that a Japanese garden is a choreography. And I'm going to share that so that these... These disciplines, the they fuse, they meet. They fuse, they meet. They they appreciate each other. They they understand that it's just uh, this multi-world. 
of overlapping. We have to move yeah. on to the world of wool. Oh, we do, don't we? Yes. And that's not a big step from the world of potatoes, to be honest. It's a bit further away from disco. Well, you have founded the Wool Alliance for Social Agency. And uh, for the past two years, I think, or even longer? No, longer. Longer. Yeah. You've studied the system that you can identify or determinate around wool as a material. And that goes from sheep to the wool market, to the fashion industry, to the recycling industry, to biodiversity. And you've made a beautiful map. We have it either in the car. We do. It's a, it's a paper map. Listeners, listen. Yep. And that's why we're in the car, yeah. actually, because I thought it was... My question would be, Cynthia, why in this time and age a physical analog folded map because you it's it's mapped it's handwritten it's pasted it's there's there's images there's writing scribbling on it um because when we navigate in the car we don't use road maps anymore no, but now we're yes. in a car yeah with a physical map yeah we why are. well i think it allows me to explore where am i and where am I, not only in um, like a, a, a context of knowledge about, let's say, a material um, or a history of where the material comes from, but it situates me in a huge, um, what turned out to be a very globalized system. And when you're talking, when you're looking at, uh, you know, you pick up a piece of wool, which I did and thought, hello, how do you do? I knew nothing about wool. And if, it, if you allow it to take you on its journey, you are in an incredibly complex space. So um, from walking with shepherds in France, in Spain, in the Netherlands, putting my feet on the ground, making also things very physical, um, doing a lot of also research from books, um, but also, uh, yeah, a lot of being with sheep, um, etc. You, lose, you can lose track, and you need to, for me, I need to put it down somewhere. If it's all in my head or in a book, a huge, a big world needs to be flattened somehow and placed all in one world, because it is one world. You can't disconnect. So you have overview. It's, a, it's an overview. You can zoom out. It's like you, a bird's eye this. view. Yeah. And, and I need to somehow, without evaporating within my own research and all the information that I gather. There's a moment where I just say, ah, I just have to almost puke it out, put it, and, and all of a sudden, it's amazing how all this stuff releases itself on a big piece of But I can now understand, paper. now we're talking, Cynthia, you and me, I can understand the, 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 the need of a map. Yeah. Because while talking, I mean, we could talk for hours about disco and potatoes and yeah. sheep and wool. So it's going to be a challenge now to get this idea of wool and its importance, but also it's it, wool as a metaphor for something much bigger, had a relation between humans, landscape, other than humans. Um, let's try to paint a picture. And maybe we should start here in Asturias, because we're in Asturias. And you've been here at the Inland Project that Fernando Garcia Dori mm -hmm. started. And we visited the headquarters of inland in Madrid, CAR. We talked to Amélie, who's running the space there. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences here? Because it was quite close to here. Well, the thing about these so-called rural pastoral landscapes is that they are working landscapes. And we are not in some idyllic, you know, uh, space of, of leisure. Although leisure is butting up against these spaces and, and causing uh, some problems, I have to say, but we cannot we cannot underestimate the value of what's going on in the hills, let's say, or what's going on in the mountains, and um, that when you go into these landscapes way up there, it's noisy. It is 
loud. It is full of animals. It is full of bells on all the animals. The hills are alive the, with the sound of? The hills what? are loud. <laughs> they, are, they are sometimes so loud that you think, you know, I need earplugs if I were to live up here. Um, the, the shepherds, no, they are loud. If you're standing beside one of them, you, you know, you're woken up because they have to maneuver the sheep uh, and, and keep an eye on them and the dog at the same time. Um, and it's sort of this, this labor system and it's co-working. So it really is very active. The landscape is working to supply the sheep or herds with what they need. Humans are looking after that landscape via the sheep that are um, eating uh, selectively the landscape so that these meadows continue. Um, they also keep away invasive species. Um, they, they, they also, the seeds in their, their wool, the seeds travel in their wool, so biodiversity is kept. The little hoofs make the soils uh, more aerated than, aerated than a heavy tractor that would compact and therefore water would run off instead of being absorbed. Um, well, when, when and why did humans start to move herds of sheep around as shepherds to make them, to feed them? To feed them and also, I mean, it goes way, way back to... Yeah, to, to when? Oh gosh, I mean, this is, this is, uh, I, it, it goes, I can't tell you an exact date, let's say, but it's been... Uh, sheep and man have been around for a very long, long time. I mean, spindles have been found, I think, in uh, Neolithic times. You know, I, I'm, I can't tell you an exact date, but that sort of um, need to survive together and to create a system of survival will mean that you're not going to overkill or you're not going to, you, you have to create a balance. And that relationship is also known, I believe, by the animal as well, who depends on the human. The human depends on keeping things uh, in a certain equilibrium. And I think also when I went up to the Arctic and talking to Inuit, they also have this, this saying that if you stay in one place for too long, you burn the land. And when you burn land, it becomes scarce. You cannot use it again. So shepherding was a way to keep uh, this the keep a scarcity away and abundance uh, going and without burning the land let's say um, so, so you roaming as roaming a way to survive as a way to survive and mobility yeah. yes and mobility and and also um, you know we're looking at systems of mobility now it's not just human uh, not just animal and shepherd it's actually we're seeing with climate change and and also political upheaval humans are are moving and um are are almost you know part of this transhuman pathways the only diff difference is is that private property politics, not in my own backyard. These are shared things that shepherds and, let's say, uh, asylum seekers or climate change uh, pe people who have to move, we're starting to share the same problems together. And, and, Can you um, quickly explain the word transhumans? Because that's a new word, for, I think, for a lot of people. Trans meaning movement. Humans is from hum hummus, humus, hummus, hummus, the earth, soil, um, and to move uh, from one pasture to the next uh, with herd, uh, so that you 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 are mobile. That's it's 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 rather um, um, uh, almost a basic need <laughs> and mobility system uh, before. Uh, Wheels came along, you know, your feet and hooves on the ground. Yeah. Well, let's step away a bit from the herds and the shepherds and the, and the roaming and the transhumants. And let's talk about wool as, as a material, because that's, that's also what got you fascinated. And I want to talk to you about a dilemma that I had just before we left for Asturias. And that was, you know, winter's coming. There's a world energy crisis. The prices for energy are outrageous. So we need to wear more clothes so um, I went to Uniqlo which is 
this fast fashion store. It's Japanese based, but it's still, it's kind of an H&M, you can say, because the, the clothes are quite cheap, but the quality is relatively high. And I went there because they have a, an affordable collection of wool sweaters. So I thought, you know, let's save some energy this winter and buy new wool sweaters that I can put on. But at the same time, it felt a bit awkward to 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 again step into this to this economy of fast fashion that I, I wanted to leave. But because normally I I tend to buy vintage clothes. Yeah. But vintage wool sweaters are not that easy to find because they're often um, damaged or they're sh- they shrunk in a weird way. Um, was it a good decision for me to to go and buy these? Three. I bought three cheap wool sweaters for winter. Uh, I, I think, I mean, it's a start, huh? <laughs> the fact that wool is in a place like Uniqlo, um, it's a start. And, um, you know, a lot of people have no idea about wool. I mean, it's quite... It's quite uh... But do you think that wool sweaters are sort of out? Do people st- still wear wool? Yeah, well, they they wear merino. They wear uh, very soft wools and um, these, cashmere. The cashmere, and these are a very fine wool, and um, and and that's fine. But you know, there are many many different breeds of sheep that also supply uh, very beautiful soft wool. And, um, you know, there's this idea that uh, merino is is the one wool to have and that you can use it for sportswear and and that's wonderful, you know. But there are many other wools and I think this variety, which, of course, these big systems of efficiency want to control and make it as efficient as possible. So you don't want to have all these different breeds and all different gauges of wool to deal with and then that will you know, spinning systems, etc., have to adapt when, um, you know, the the having a constant supply of one type of wool makes it easier. But you have to explain me something, because I grew up in a time where wool was a luxury product. You know, you had the wool mark with, an, with a fancy logo, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, you had wool coats. Wool was kind of chic, and it and a luxury, yeah, a luxury material. But now um, the price for wool on the world market is zero zilch. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, good old polyesters came along and cheap labor. And when that happened, you know, a European wool industry disappeared. And uh, so it, most of it, if not all of it, went to China. And so my wool sweater that I bought at Uniqlo comes from wool that was bought or transported to China to be processed into yarn, I think? Sure, a po- poss- probably from Australia and New Zealand, uh, uh, but also China is now has a big, huge sheep uh, population, so they're also starting to uh, be competitors, let's say, to even Australia and New Zealand. Um so yeah, I mean it's it's uh, poly- polyesters is also something that f- I think finally maybe some more news is coming out about microplastics. Um, but then what's the alternative? And I feel that those that have been working in wool for so long, this is the time to say wool is biodegradable. You don't have to wash it very often. If you do, it doesn't release microplastics. Um, you know, it keeps you cool in the summer, warm in the winter. You can indeed turn your heat down where you when you wear a sweater indoors. Um, so it's it's now is the time to activate to get the knowledge out there to make it um, a little more tangible in the streets um, and not on a wool map or in an even. And that's why you started the Wool Alliance because it it it, it sounds a bit like. It sounds activist. It sounds like, okay, yeah. you know, we're going to do yeah. something. Yeah. And you're going to do something. Yeah. The, the Wool Alliance for Social Agency was really a moment that 
people could feel they had a place to come and work together to not only talk about wool, but also where are we going and, and how do we want to live in the future, or not the future, but now. And a lot of concerned people have come and seen through wool a lot of these shared interests. Because wool is one example of a system, but I find it it, it represents so many other systems. So, for instance... Um, I have a member of the Wool Alliance for Social Agency in Pakistan, in Karachi, Pakistan. And he's a recycler of probably where a lot of the sweaters that um, got out of fashion and maybe are even going to go when people are still stuck with fast fashion, they go to him. And he imports uh, 5,000 tons of post-consumer sweater waste a year. And together we are trying uh, to create, yeah, not only the importance of wool now, but also bringing research to the places where for so many, many years they've been dealing with the wool waste. And to bring real, um, let's say, technologically sound, sustainable sound, sound uh, technology uh, to, to places that, like Pakistan, have been sort of under the foot <laughs> of, um, yeah. Because they invested a lot in, in, in new technologies. Not, I mean, they would love to, but that's the difficulty. That, that capitalist system of cheap labor makes these countries um, suffer from technological advance because if they do advance, they could be seen as competition or could be uh, feared as asking more money for their services or being more less dependent on the system. So this is, this is a But it's very all quite complex because very. you also um, agitate sometimes again. So how do you say that? You're angry about that tendency to overvalue the local. Yeah. Like, let's do everything yeah. local. Local sheep, yeah. local wool, local food, local everything. And that sort of counts out these places, these this exactly. globalized places of expertise. Yeah. I really think we we really have to be careful when we uh, say that the most sustainable choice is to go local. Uh, you know, we have to also think about social sustainability, global uh, welfare, with all the people that have been involved with getting us to this position where we're starting to say, let's go local. Um, what happens to these to these groups that have been dealing with, let's say, our waste for so long, their livelihoods, their concern, their shared concern for the environment, the, the environment that is crumbling around them because we're buying things that use so much water um, in these places that are producing and also recycling. So we have to find a, a, not a middle ground. We just have to remember we are all in it together. We should be smart about it. We have to be really smart about it. And, um, and smart because there's so much expertise in places like uh, Datini Fibers, who, who I work with, uh, Hasnain Lilani. They, he knows all about the fashion system. He's been a part of the fashion system. He is a part of the fashion system. He's having to also, um, you know, hack machines to make them work. Um, he's on top of it. Why are we leaving them out off the table? Just as we are shepherds, just as we are even sheep, just as we are, uh, you know, giant vegetable growers. Um, yeah, I get it. All yeah. these yeah. things we leave out by becoming almost localized. I, I find it, I find it very difficult uh, to always say oh let's go local 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 we're, we're too far but that's also that. the reason that you that you started this alliance mm -hmm. because it ha it has this this it has an urgency yeah and you um it you wouldn't be you if you wouldn't um design or think about events or moments or create a momentum in which everything comes together yeah and you are very soon from now, I think it's in two weeks, yeah. one week. A week. You're organizing a wool march. Yeah. Tell me about the wool march. Okay, the wool march. It is a march with a local herd. Uh, 
of a part van Echendonk, who's with the Lachende Oi farm, and he is uh, he is a herder um, or, or a shepherd that looks after the national monument and and other pastures around Tilburg uh, with his herd with his sheep and along with other shepherds like Marley Haumanns. Um, he is, I believe he employs like six other shepherds. They look after the landscape around Tilburg. And um, with that herd and, and the shepherds, I'm putting on a wool march to bring the urban and rural together, to bring physically the rural back into the urban via about 300 sheep. Wow. Shepherds. It's a big herd. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can be bigger, <laughs> but you, you can't go smaller because you can't stop traffic with just 20 sheep. So it has to be big. And um, so we will walk into Tilburg um, along a historic uh, shepherding paths because there were hundreds of them at one point in Tilburg. It was a, a city of textile industry and, and wool uh, production, spinning, etc. And with the sheep and many hands, uh, diverse communities of practice, we have made 20 special felted blankets um, or banners, I guess you could call them, that will fit onto the sheep of their own wool. And those banners are specially embroidered with um, wool thread, also by a, a young uh, embroiderer, Tegen uh, Drads, Thijs van Buren in Rotterdam, with wool thread. And this, my research, my map, plus the stories of what I have found from felting with many different people, um, are going to be, uh, let's say, banners, advertising or protests or, you know, sayings about how important wool is, not as just a beautiful material for, as a biological material, but as a social fabric, as a cultural fabric, as a, as a, it weaves people together and different cultures and memories and stories together and weaves um, urban and rural relations together, weaves mat, human, dog, sheep moving together. Um, yeah, well, you say it so harmoniously. Yeah, let, let's move it's... together, but you're going to clog up the city probably. Yeah. Well, um, let's no? say only momentarily because we're moving. Huh? So, and you know. Yeah, but you know how people are these days. I do, but uh, we've already done practice runs, and of course the shepherds do this because they have to get from A to B, and this is what this is: it's getting from A pasture to B pasture. Uh, they have the right to move their herd. Um, it's just that we have lost that memory of what happens when you are confronted with 300 sheep in front of you. Whether you are in a massive transport truck, part of a global system of transporting things around the world, uh, an eight-rig uh, transport truck, to somebody who's walking down the street. This, uh, uh, this coming together of worlds, of mobility, we've, we've lost touch. So... At first, it might seem like, what the heck is this? But as soon as it's there, you, you have to give up. You know, you just have to let the, the river, the sheep river, flow around you and through you and through memory and through the present time. And hopefully, as your wheels start turning again, you think, Something what was happened. that all about? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the messages will come into your mind as a truck driver or as somebody who's going to go shopping in the Albert Hine or go to Zara or go to H&M. Um, well, it also brings everybody together in a sort of a still. Huh? Everything stops. For, yeah, the yeah. sheep move, but we stop. Yeah. Interesting. That's I a nice... Yeah. Uh, it's super... It's, it's a nice um, sort of moment of dilemma. Yeah. What do we do? Oh, we have to stop for a moment. Just it's also moment. magic. It is magic. I, to see a herd... It really is this, this ocean, this, and all the heads are bopping along in the ears. And, and you know, we've really lost that, uh, what was once cultural heritage in, in France, uh, for sure, in Italy, in Spain, where the sheep were either taken up, 
transhumants taken up to pasture or brought down back through the city, it became a ritual. And, and people looked forward to it. It was a time. It became a way to mark time. And so that's also something I'd like to test out. Test and also, yeah, I don't, I'm not preachy in any way. I just want people to somehow recognize something's going on here and what is it. Well, you're not preachy, but you confront them in a, in a fun way with yeah. something very essential. Experiential way. So um, next week, the first wool march. Are there going to be more wool marches yes. after this one? I really hope that it becomes an annual event in Tilburg. Um, I also want to go also where, to Spain, to France, to... Uh, it's not, I'm not the only one bringing uh, herds into the city. Um, but I think what's different is these blankets that the sheep also become activists within this yeah, co-working. They are being voiced, Yeah, literally. that they're being voiced. And I think with each community that I uh, am working with, we can actually maybe make enough to fit 300 sheep, the average herd for uh, starting uh, yeah. the transhumans. Well, Cynthia, I'm super curious how that's going to work out, the wool march. You're going to film it, so yeah. we will update our listeners to to whatever um, platform you're going to show this movie or this footage from the march. Yeah. And uh, Probably Wool March on Instagram. So keep, oh, a, Walmart, yeah. keep an eye Follow on Follow Wool March on Instagram. Yeah. And um, good luck. Yeah, here's to Wooly Futures. <laughs> <laughs> and disco. <laughs> and let's drive back to the house now. Yeah. And the funny thing, we didn't open the map. We didn't. We were so caught up I in this. I know, um, I know. It's it's really. Um, we didn't need to. We there was so much to. to talk about. Thank you so much. We're gonna start the car and drive back Motor home. Motor on. Turn some wheels. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute, in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.